This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and an executive coach, and today I am delighted to welcome David Glasgow to the show. David will talk about how to have civil conversations about identity differences, race, sex, class, and many other topics in this time of swift and significant social change. David, welcome to the show. Well, so wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness. I'm really excited to dive into a conversation about this topic. It is, in my observation, a particularly difficult time to have conversations about identity differences, race, because there is a vocabulary that is changing by the minute in addition to the social change. So get us started, set up the landscape, and then share a bit about why this is a topic of interest for you and your co-author. Absolutely. So I agree 100% that we're living in a moment now where conversations about issues of identity and diversity can be particularly fraught. And so one of those you pinpointed just now, which was the changes in terminology that can be uh, very difficult for people to keep up with sometimes. Another one is just the sheer uh, demographic change, uh, both uh, in the United States where I work and live, but also globally where people are becoming more aware of our diversity differences. And there are also changes in the composition of societies, whether it's on race and ethnicity or the proportion of the population that identifies as LGBTQ or or otherwise. And so I think that uh, greater awareness of diversity the social movements that, of course, are pushing a lot of these conversations, whether that's the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, transgender rights or other social movements, all of that uh, combining is making these conversations both important, uh, but also very difficult for people. And so uh, I came into this work because I and my co-author of our book uh, called Say the Right Thing uh, do a lot of work on diversity, equity, and inclusion issues with organizations. And we noticed uh, that people are really struggling. They're terrified of saying the wrong thing, and that's making them withdraw from these conversations in fear. And so we wanted to help give people some tools to overcome that fear. And that's what I love about the book. It really is so tool driven. And you're right. I mean, I've observed people and myself, I've even shut down fearful of saying the wrong thing. And it's changed how we communicate. It's changed our our connection and our community. So let's let's pick at that a little bit. Why is there such a disconnect right now? And I appreciate that you said um, language uh, globally, but let's focus on language in America. How do we use language to unite rather than divide? Yeah, so I think one of the big disconnects is that there is a huge generational difference in how uh, people are talking about identity and diversity issues. So with a lot of the people we work with and organizations we work with, they're telling us that when they have new hires coming in from Gen Z or some of their younger millennials, uh, they're just much more comfortable with the language of identity and diversity. They're using a lot of terminology that may be unfamiliar to people who are older within those organizations, whether it's terms like non-binary or even terms that uh, meant something different a few decades ago, right? People referring to white supremacy 
in the workplace in a way that um, older generations typically think of that as being quite distinctly referring to very extreme forms of bigotry in a way that younger people are often using it to refer to more just unconscious or systemic forms of bias on the basis of race. And so I think that generational difference is one of the big drivers of the disconnect. And so I think what we're trying to do in this book is give people some of the tools for having these conversations so that they can close that gap and uh, build some of the competencies for having those conversations so that we can, as you say, use these conversations to unite us. You know, it's interesting. I think of the term privilege and it it can often, um, you know, get our hackles up, but you write with your co-author about ways to think about privilege in a more helpful and a more nuanced way. So tell me more. Yeah. So that's a great example um, of privilege because I think a lot of people who hear that term get their backs up because they think that it means that you're privileged across all dimensions of your life. So that if I tell you that you have privilege, one of the reactions that you might have to that is to say, well, how dare you accuse me of that because, you know, I grew up um, in a single parent household or I've experienced financial distress or, you know, draw on various different aspects of your life where you have had disadvantage. And, you know, what we point out in the book is that privilege really is multidimensional. It's not just about race and gender. Um, It's also about ability, sexual orientation, citizenship, all these different aspects of of who we are. And if you understand that multidimensional nature of privilege, then you can understand that all of us have some aspects of privilege and some aspects of disadvantage. So that when someone tells you that you have privilege, they're rarely saying, you know, all lights have turned green for you down the highway of life and you've never experienced any hardship. What they're really saying is that you may have experienced some forms of hardship, but there are also other forms of hardship that you have had the privilege not to experience. So I, as a white man, um, have experienced uh, hardship for being gay, um, but I have not experienced hardship um, on account of my race. Thank you for sharing that. I want to go to a tricky, I should say sticky topic, and that is cancel culture. First, set it up so this global audience understands what it is. And you write about, maybe we should hit the pause button on cancel culture. So I'd like to hear more. Yeah, so cancel culture um, really refers to uh, practices that people engage in that just Uh, immediately uh, condemn uh, people for making mistakes on issues of diversity and inclusion. It's often an online phenomenon. So I think it originated in social media where someone would say something offensive and then a a whole mob of people on Twitter or other social media would pile on that person and essentially say, uh, this person should be ostracized and cast out of uh, of, uh, reasonable civil life. Um, And so what we want to do is say, look, that form of harsh judgment and condemnation and ostracism really is appropriate sometimes if people have engaged in truly egregious behavior. So we're not, you know, losing any sleep over the over the fact that Harvey Weinstein has been canceled, for example. If people right. have engaged in something truly egregious, that's that's fine. What we uh, where we have some more concerns though are that we think this culture can spill over into ordinary situations where all of us make mistakes sometimes. So I mean Every single person, including me, including my co-author, own up to the fact that we have made our own mistakes in conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, whether that's 
accidentally, you know, misgendering someone who uh, right. is transgender or confusing individuals who belong to the same race or ethnicity as each other. And so we think that um, if we apply a cancelling approach to everyone who makes those mistakes, then all of us are vulnerable to being cancelled. And that really ratchets up the fear factor that we all experience. And so what we want to do is just display more generosity to each other in these conversations to focus less on condemning each other and more on helping each other grow and giving people the tools to grow. I'm so deeply grateful for that on a, on a, on a big level, but also on a personal level, because as you said, I, I make mistakes too. And sometimes it's just clearly my lack of knowledge. You know, maybe it was a, a misstep on, on honoring someone's chosen pronouns that I, I wasn't aware. And I think we have to come to a place where we can apologize and own it and have it as a learning opportunity to grow together. And I'll, I'll ask for you to dig into the book for a bit and just give an example of what that might look like. So this listening audience can understand how to approach that mistake with empathy. Yeah, so a good example would be let's let's pick up on the example I gave before, which is let's say you um, accidentally misgender someone. So you use the wrong right. gender pronouns to refer to someone who who is transgender. A common approach that people take to that topic is, in fact, sort of counterintuitively to over-apologize. So mm. one of our students that we talk about in the book, who is gender non-binary, gave a presentation in class on this topic and said, you know, when when people misgender me, I, I hate it when they go on and on and on saying, oh my God, goodness, I'm a terrible person. I can't believe I did that. I feel so bad. What must you think of me, et cetera, et cetera. And that then puts pressure on the student to in fact comfort and reassure the person who offended them. So it kind of flips the script a little bit. So what we recommend doing in a situation like that would be just to offer a really simple, short, sweet apology and, and be done with it. So we have a whole chapter in the book on how to apologize, where we talk about the four elements of apology, which are the four R's. So recognition, responsibility, remorse, and redress. And I'd be happy to go into detail on any of those if helpful. But really, if you just hit those points and you say a simple I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize that was your gender pronoun, or I'm sorry, I realize I just misgendered you now. I'll learn your pronouns and I'll try to do better next time. That really is all that it takes in that situation. And then you can apply a growth mindset to it. So rather than thinking that that mistake defines you as a human being and turns you into a terrible person, you use it as an opportunity to grow and do better next time. Mm, I love it. Thank you for that clarity. David, we'll be right back after a quick break. If you want to bring your new podcast to life or up your podcast game, you can get up to two months of free podcasting with Libsyn using my special code CDHWORK. The Libsyn team will get your podcast on Apple and Spotify and give you access to critical stats and all the support you need to sound your best and grow your show. Use the special code CDHWORK work. Hello there, it's Caroline Dowd Higgins. I know that hiring the right speaker for your event is a tremendous responsibility. You need a speaker who can customize content to meet your goals and someone who will work within your budget and engage your audience. Meeting planners around the world have recognized me for being 
easy to work with and uniquely suited to create dynamic programming for your needs. My style is high energy and engaging with practical takeaways that participants can implement in their lives and careers immediately. Whether you're looking to retain or grow top talent, create healthy workplace cultures, or prevent burnout in your organization, I create customized content to help recharge, reignite, or reinvent your career. From the boardroom to the training room or the convention hall, I will help your audience thrive. Let's talk about how I can help you achieve your special event goals. You can find me at carolinedowdhiggins.com. Okay, David. I am so pleased that the book really honors centering on empathy and sharing our mistakes and being open to a growth mindset that is certainly part of the hallmarks of uh, the coaching methodology that I use. And you have a real menu of strategies when you hear someone make, um, let's give an example of a, a biased remark. So walk us through one or two of those strategies, uh, similar to what you just did, uh, to help people really understand how they can work towards saying the right thing. This is a, a common situation I think that people find themselves in, which is that they overhear someone else making a biased remark, and then we all sort of freeze and say nothing because we think of maybe the perfect come back later. Uh, so this is called a, a staircase thought or an escalator thought where you walk out of the room and you think, oh, I wish I had said this or that. And so we actually have a menu in the book of different options of why don't you just commit a couple of phrases to memory in advance of things that sound uh, authentic to you so that when you're in a situation like that, you can just dust off the item that makes the most sense to you. So for example, one strategy we offer is to emphasize the impact of the comment on you. So you might say something like, that comment didn't land well on me because dot, 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 or I felt uncomfortable about what you just said because dot, dot, dot. Um, another example uh, we give is to affirm the person's intentions. So you might say, I know you intended that as a joke, but I found it off-putting because dot, dot, dot. Or, you know, while I'm sure you didn't mean it to come across this way, I found that insulting. And so the kind of menu of options that we give, and there's about a dozen or more of them in the book, are really designed to give people tools for how do I confront someone for engaging in bias in a way that's going to get my views across without having them shut down and get extremely defensive. Because the temptation can sometimes either be to avoid the conversation altogether or to jump down their throat. And neither of those is particularly productive. And I, I so appreciate that the book really focuses on learning because these are, are skills that, that are essential in our communication. DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, some organizations also use belonging, DEIB, is all the rage. Everybody's got it on their company website. Some organizations are doing training. But rarely have I seen the content focus on what you and your co-author are bringing to the forefront. Is that changing, David? I think so. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the whole reason that we came to this uh, work in the first place is because we work with a lot of organizations on uh, these issues of how do you drive a more inclusive and more equitable culture, but a huge barrier for engagement, especially among members of ally groups. So by those, we mean 
members of more advantaged social backgrounds. So white individuals, men, uh, straight individuals, people who don't have disabilities. Uh, one of the huge barriers is that because they're so afraid of saying the right thing, of saying the wrong thing rather, they will retreat from from engaging at all. So we see a lot of people just engage, doing what we call avoid behavior, just sort of not even entering these conversations in the first place. And we think that's a huge barrier. And so what we're trying to do is to overcome that by giving people tools for having these conversations so that, as you say, they can contribute to a more inclusive culture themselves. And I do think that that is shifting because everyone is looking now for ways in which allies can uh, involve themselves in these conversations in productive ways. Well, thank you for that. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you're working with organizations because, again, this can be such a an important part of that toolkit when we are learning together how to be more inclusive and, and honor empathy and how we uh, we talk about these things. I, I really picked up on how you write, it's okay to disagree respectfully and civilly. So tell us more about that, because I think some people are so frightened, they they become silent and paralyzed, and cognitive diversity is to be celebrated. Yeah, uh, this is an area where, at least in our experience, a lot of people feel uh, like they're not allowed to disagree, or that if they do disagree, um, that that means that they're betraying their conversation partner in some way, or perhaps they're not as enlightened as they thought they were. But of course, disagreements in life are inevitable. And so again, we sort of thought, well, let's not sweep that under the rug. Let's acknowledge that people are going to disagree with each other from time to time and just give people some strategies for doing that effectively. So we do start by telling people, Start by building emotional resilience and cultivating curiosity, because it may be that there isn't really a disagreement underneath there. You just have to listen more generously to your conversation partner, right? Often people think there's a disagreement because they're barreling into a conversation and saying, well, that's wrong. But if they just stop and pause and take a breath and listen with empathy, they might find that in fact, they can reach common ground with their conversation partner. But assuming there is a real disagreement there, then we offer some strategies for how to actually engage in that disagreement, which I'd be happy to go into more detail in if that's helpful. I would love that, please. So one of the ones that we talk about is a, a, a tool that we call the controversy scale. So what we want people to recognize is that disagreements are not all created equal. So if you and I are disagreeing over which flavor of ice cream is better, that is a very different kind of disagreement to if you and I are disagreeing over, you know, gender quotas in the workplace, for example. And so what we point out is that if you imagine a spectrum running from left to right, and on the far left of the spectrum is a disagreement over tastes like ice cream flavors, if you move further and further over on the scale to the right, you might add disagreements about facts, just, just pure facts, who, what, when, where, why. And then as you keep moving further and further to the right on the scale, the intensity of the controversy ratchets up. So if you're disagreeing over policies, it's harder. If you're disagreeing over values, it's harder. And then if you're disagreeing over the very equal humanity of the people in the conversation, then those are the most difficult and agonizing conversations of all. And so we want, what we want people to do is become a bit more self-aware about the fact that where they are on the controversy scale is often very different to where their conversation partner is at. So if I'm, say, a parent of a white child in school and I'm disagreeing with my school's curriculum with respect to race and I'm talking with a parent of a black child in that same school, 
this might just be a policy debate for me. It might just be, oh, how should history be taught in schools or what's appropriate for different grade levels? And I'm thinking of it in those kind of philosophical terms. For that other parent engaging in the conversation, she might think that this implicates her equal humanity, that this is really a disagreement about whether her child even belongs at the school in the first place, because she's the one that has to deal with that child getting bullied at school because of the color of of the child's skin. So that's just one of many strategies we offer, but it's to get people to reflect on, is there a gap between what this disagreement means to me and what the disagreement means to the other person? And how can I acknowledge that gap and show empathy when I'm communicating with the other person? You know, it's interesting because I think as humans, we often think we can mind read the person with whom we're speaking. And this is a clear indication of perspective and and how we need to be open-minded and empathetic and understand the other side. Exactly. Yes. And and I'm glad that you you really felt that the empathy really came through because to us, that's really what the entire book is about, really, is about giving people the ability to sort of get into the shoes of another person and, and have those more empathetic conversations. So to that end, you you do talk about how there are situations where we have an emotional reaction if we're called out for a misstep, for example. And there are four, which you say are, are very natural, but but unhelpful. Would you share those? Because again, I think that'll be a great learning moment for this audience. Yeah, so the four are what we call ADDA behavior. So avoid, deflect, deny, and attack. So avoid is what it sounds like. You sort of run out of the room or you go silent or you don't say what you really think. Uh, so, And then deflect is where you change the subject. You start talking about something else. So you might talk about how well intended you were, or you might even just change it to a completely different subject that doesn't have to do with identity at all. Let's talk about the weather, for example. Uh, deny is where you just put up a wall and say, no, you're wrong. So you are engaging with the other person on the subject that they raise. You're not changing the subject, but you're just reflexively dismissing whatever the other person told you. And then attack is where you really make it personal. And so you turn around to the other person and you make a a kind of accusation against them or you insult them or you use sarcasm. And so really this ADDA behavior runs the gamut of essentially fight or flight mode, right? So uh, avoid and deflect are the flight versions and uh, yeah. deny and attack are the fight versions. Wow. It's it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's so much to this. It's incredibly complex. So how do you avoid the ADDA missteps? A big factor here is building resilience. So we think a lot of ADDA behavior comes from the extreme emotional discomfort that we tend to feel in these conversations. And it makes us shut down and want to run away from the conversation. And so we want to give people tools for, well, how do you then build the resilience so that you don't engage in that fight or flight? And so just to share, you know, one example of that, it really is to go to that growth mindset that you mentioned earlier. So the psychologist Dolly Choke points out that in a lot of areas of life, if you're playing musical instrument or you're learning a new language, when you make a mistake, you don't think that it implicates your fundamental moral character as a human being. You just think I've made a mistake. Whereas in this area, when we make mistakes, we tend to think that it defines who we are. It turns us into a racist or a sexist or a homophobe or what have you. And what we're trying to get people to do is apply the same growth mindset that they might apply in learning a new skill in their job, 
and apply it over here as well. So one technique for doing that is to add the word yet to the end of a sentence. So you might, you, you won't say, oh, I'm not good at pronouns, period. You would say, I'm not good at pronouns yet, recognizing that if you practice, you can get better at it over time. And that's just one of many strategies we talk about of how you can actually ground yourself emotionally for these conversations so that you don't engage in ADDA. I love that. And it's really an opportunity to believe in your ability to learn. So that's good stuff. David, as we wrap, uh, again, I I love that the book has seven principles and one of them is applying the platinum rule. So tell us about that. This is getting at, uh, it's not our coinage, the platinum rule, but it really is getting at an adaptation to the golden rule. So everyone I think is familiar with the golden rule of treating people as you would wish to be treated. And one of the insights I think in this field of diversity, equity, and inclusion is that people often aren't like us and don't necessarily wish to be treated in exactly the same way as we ourselves might wish to be treated. So it invites us to go one step further and think about treating others as they would wish to be treated. So again, it's an exercise in empathy of either asking another person how they wish to be treated or using informed empathy to think about what actual form of intervention is going to be most helpful to that person. So um, a good sort of example of this is, you know, during the Black Lives Matter protests of a couple of years ago, uh, a lot of people tried to be good allies, but they, you know, missed the mark in certain ways. So for example, one of the thing, mistakes that people made was to use social media to post just plain black squares on their social media with the hashtag Black Lives Matter. And so Instagram kind of got flooded with these plain black squares. And then a lot of activists pointed out that that was making it very difficult for them to communicate using the hashtag. And it was because they kind of would get lost in a Mm. sea of black squares. And so just pausing and using the platinum rule and thinking, well, is this thing that I'm doing as an ally actually going to be most helpful for the people that I'm trying to support? Or is there some other way that I could be intervening in a way that's focused on their needs um, from their perspective? David Glasgow, I learned so much from you today. I'm deeply grateful. Your incredible book, co-authored by Kenji Yoshino, is called Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity, and Justice. And of course, it's available on Amazon and all major book retailers. David, thank you for this incredible work. And I am so thrilled that our paths crossed today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And Your Working Life is now available on all major podcast platforms, and I want to hear from you, so let me know how we're doing. You can find me at carolinedowdhiggins.com. And I want to give a special shout out to my Your Working Life colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. We now have listeners in 16 countries around the world. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.